Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. For thousands of years, people have been uh, seeking spiritual guidance from people that they would consider to be maybe the spiritually elite, or at least they have some kind of spiritual influence into people's lives. And so, all around the world, people have been developing religious religions in which they are trying to create a pathway in which they can then connect with God and appease God for, what, for whatever, whatever they want. And there's these religious experiences that are going on, and, and the whole purpose behind it is to give people an opportunity to get into heaven. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to either, either earn their way in, become good enough, get to a place of tranquility and peace so that they can get to that spot in heaven. Here's the problem that people are having. As they step into whatever religion they are engaging in, they are given a list of responsibilities that they have to fulfill. They are given um, things that they need to do in order to appease God. And, and they're trying to maybe find a way to be reborn a number of times so they finally get to that destination that they're, they're looking for. The big problem with it is, is that when you start to ask the leaders of these various religious organizations this question, it's a bit confusing for those who are seeking God. Because the question is, how will I know when I have done enough good works? How will I know when I've done enough of following the rules and obeying the regulations? How will I know when I've earned good favor with God in order for me to be secure so that if I were to die, then I would know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven or wherever it is they're trying to get to? And typically the answer is, well, you really don't know. You just have to kind of hope for the best. But you just got to keep on trying. You got to keep on working at it. You keep on um, pushing in and hopefully you will get to the place where you've earned enough right to be good enough that God will be pleased with you and then he might let you in. But there's no guarantee. That's the problem with religion. Religion has regulations and rules and things you have to do and can't do, and, and it's all about all those things. And, and there are people who believe that the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, has that same kind of a, a process in which we are supposed to connect with Him. That we have these rules, these regulations, all these laws and commandments that we have to obey. We've got all this stuff going on, and we just need to do that, and then we might have earned favor with God. But if you read the Bible, and when you do read the Bible, you will recognize that God has said, it's not about regulations. It's not about rule keeping. It, it's only about one thing, and that's relationship. God has desired to have a relationship with human beings right from the beginning. You see that with Adam and Eve, because in the garden, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the morning and in the cool of the evening, they would meet with God and they would have these wonderful conversations and they would just express themselves to God. And God in return would come back and express His love to them. One of our problems though is that we're a bit fickle. Because that one day we come to church 
and something happens and something is stirred deep inside of us and we have this moment with God where we, we, we utter the words to God, I will do whatever you ask me to do. I will say whatever you ask me to say. I will go wherever you want me to go. This is the, the process of our life that God wants us to do these things. And, 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 and we say yes to Him. And then one week later, something happens and we go like, well, you know, that was really emotional. God, you can't hold me to an emotional decision. I, I really didn't mean it. And, and so I, I really don't think that that's what I want to do. And so I, I just can't have this connection with you the way you want me to. The problem with that is, is that we've given God lip service. The prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, he understood the human condition. And, and he's, he's talking ab about himself. He's talking about the, the people of Israel, God's the people God set aside for his own. He called them, you're my chosen people. I've set you aside. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Here's what Isaiah says about God's chosen people. He, he's talking to God when he says this. He says, you welcome those who gladly do good who follow godly ways. I mean, that's, that's who he's, he's talking about. But you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are consistent sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins... Sweep us away like the wind, yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sin. That's not God's description of us. That's our descriptions of ourselves. Because all of a sudden, we realize that, that we have this God who is awesome. He is holy. He is righteous. And he's calling us to step into that kind of a relationship with him. And we can't do it. But God in his wisdom and in his great mercy knew what the condition of our heart was going to be. He understood who we are. He knew we were going to try and fix ourselves. That's what religion is about, trying to fix ourselves in the eyes of God. And, and so what God did, he, he, he looked at us and goes, I know you're trying really hard, and I know you're really working diligent at it, but it really comes woefully short of what you need to have in order to be in relationship with me. And so what God did is he gave us an example of a vibrant, healthy, loving, encouraging relationship. And then he showed us what that looked like. And then he provided a way for us to have that same relationship with God. That's all he wanted from us. So Jesus, when he came to earth, he came full of grace and truth. And the characteristics that he had, that he dis displayed to the entire world, the characteristics of his uniqueness as being God and man, combined in one, one person, Jesus Christ, perfect in everything. He, he demonstrated to us what a perfect relationship with God would look like. It would be intimate. It would be moving. It would be the most real thing you've ever seen in your life. And, and the, the, the deal about it was, is when, G, when Jesus came and he was demonstrating what his relationship with the Father was like, people sat up and took notice. They went, I have never seen anything like that in my life. Matter of fact, the disciples said to, to Jesus, what you've got with the Father, I want that. That's what I want. And the way that they said it to him was, teach us to pray the way that you pray. I want that relationship. I want that intimacy. I want that connectedness. 
I, I want to love God deeply and passionately, and I want to hear from God. And that's what Jesus displayed for us, and it became contagious. And people all around Jesus, as he walked through the greater Jerusalem, Judea area, they were all drawn magnetically and lovingly to Jesus, and they said, I want what you've got with God. And that brings us to our talk this morning. John chapter 3. Jesus, Jesus is going to have this conversation with one of the most powerful men in all of Israel. He has everything. He's got it all going on for himself. And what, what the gospel writer John does is he lets us eavesdrop in on this conversation between Jesus and this Pharisee. So we'll start with verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now let me just set the stage for you. There was no one more powerful than a person like this. He was a Pharisee, which meant he was one of the most highly educated men in the entire nation. Not just on things um, spiritual, which he was at the elite group of spiritual things, but also because he was a ruler of the Jews. He was also educated on economics, on political science. He was educated on everything that applied to life as a ruler in Jerusalem. So he, he had met the status goal of everybody. I want to be like this guy. This is the guy I want to be like. But it, this is a story of a man who has everything, but really has nothing. He's famous, and, and he's popular, he's respected and wealthy, yet he is empty inside and dissatisfied with life. His religious activity has, has left him seeking for more. He's searching for answers to the longings of his heart, and he finds himself at Jesus' door looking for light in darkness. Nicodemus had everything, yet he seeks Jesus out. He was a teacher coming to be taught. If you're going to learn any kind of truth, you must come to Jesus with an open mind and a teachable spirit. The, uh, the name of, of my talk today is the non-negotiables. After I worked on this thing for a while, I almost changed it. I was going to call it Nick at night. <laughs> but you would have all thought of Nickelodeon, right? And I just didn't want, I didn't want that much confusion. There might be a little bit, but not that much. So here we have this guy who, who is coming and seeking Jesus. Now, why did he come to seek Jesus? Because he was at the temple. Remember last week? The lion and the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the lion who conquered death and was resurrected to life. He saw Jesus at the temple because he was at the temple, because it was the Passover weekend. All the religious leaders were there, and Nicodemus is there, and he watched Jesus bust somebody's backside with a whip and drive out the animals and the money changers. He watched Jesus do all those things. But that wasn't the thing that impressed Nicodemus. It's what happened after that that impressed Nicodemus. Because something happened, we didn't even talk about it last week, I kind of saved it for this week, at the end of chapter 2. Look at what it says at the end of chapter 2. It says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, Many began to trust in him. I'm going to stop right there. What did Jesus do? He did miraculous signs. It doesn't say specifically what he did, but you just can use your imagination because if you've read anything about Jesus, you know that when he saw a need, he would meet it. So at the temple, people are hoping that God will come and touch them. And so you have the blind. They're being able to see now. You have those who are being brought in on a mat because they want to come and worship God, but they don't have the ability because they're, they're lame, they're crippled, they're they just can't walk, and so people are assisting them, and Jesus heals them. 
People come in with all kinds of problems and diseases and Jesus comes and makes their life better and he brings healing to them. Somebody might come in and Jesus would recognize them immediately and they would recognize Jesus as being the Son of God because they would have a demon in them and they would shriek and cry out at Jesus and Jesus would give them freedom from that demon and give them healing. Jesus would look and say, you have nothing but fear and trouble in your life. My name is the Prince of Peace. Here's some peace. Enjoy my peace. You see, that's what Jesus would have done as miraculous signs for the people. And Nicodemus saw it. And he was attracted to it. And he desired to know from Jesus, what makes you, you? Let's carry on. Because it says, next, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. Uh, Jesus isn't going to talk about the things when Nicodemus came to him. He's not sitting down and Nicodemus is going like, you're this amazing guy. Why didn't Jesus trust himself to the people? I mean, they're all of a sudden, they're going like, he's healing people. He's letting people who are demon-possessed find freedom from that. He's having a conversation with God. He made the temple what it should have been. People are attracted to him. They're following him. And yet, Jesus wouldn't give himself to, to them. He didn't trust them. Why didn't he trust them? Well, I will tell you that he didn't trust them because he knew how fickle they were. He, he knew that, that they, were, they were here today and gone tomorrow. He, he knew our condition of our heart. He knew that we would, we would be excited about him for one day and then the next day we would forget all about him. And until something better came along, we were all for Jesus. But then when we saw something that seemed more exciting and more adventuresome, we would follow that and do that. And so Jesus knew what was true about people. And so he went on the record 700 years prior to him being at the temple. He went on the record and he set the record straight. And this is what he said in Isaiah. He says, so the Lord said, that's Jesus. These people, they are mine. They honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Even though God set them aside, even though God called them out of Egypt, even though God did all these things, they, they would come to God and they'd go, Oh, you're great, you're mighty, you're awesome, we love you, God, we love you, God, but God, don't tell us what to do. We love you, but we don't love you telling us what it is we have to do. We want to do our own thing. We love you because we're gonna, we know that you're going to provide a way for us to go to heaven. So we love you that much, but we don't love you enough to do what you tell us to do. We don't love you enough to obey your word. We don't love you enough to, to step into everything you're asking us to do. We like our life. We like the way we do life. So don't interfere with us. Our life, just give us hope. For heaven. You, you see, that's, that's where we go with these things. And, and, and we're much the same way. I, I believe that we have good intentions. I, I think the, that the intention of our heart is to honor God and to do the things that really please God and to walk with God and to give our lives to God. But as the old saying goes, good intentions pave the highway to hell. Our hearts are always vacillating one way or the other. They're unpredictable. And, and, and on the one hand, we love God and we're willing to make changes in our lives to grow and, and be with Him and to, to go and do what He tells us to do. But then the next week, we're just not feeling it anymore. It's just not who I really want to be. And, and I, I'm just not that committed this week. And, and so, you know, it was not a rational decision I made. It was kind of, emotional and so let, let's not go there but then on the other hand we come into a worship service and we're we're 
we're praising God and we're, we're singing. We, we might even go half, you know, Pentecostal, half Baptist, right? That's this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, in the middle of this, this wonderful worship set, as the band's leading, we get just the goosebumpies all over. And we know that's the Spirit of God moving in us. And so we're all excited about it. And so the next week, when we come back to church, we do everything in our power to recreate that experience so we can get the goosebumps again. And we keep trying harder and harder. We sing louder. We go full on. Forget the Baptist. I'm going all in now. And, and we're looking for the goosebumps to happen. And they don't happen. And we're wondering, how do I get that experience again? Where's the, where's the, the movement of, of getting me all fired up and, and just excited and, and just shivers? And so what we do is we chase after the experience and we leave the experience giver in the dust. And he's going, you, over here. And you go, no, 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 no. You're going to tell me what to do. I just want goosebumps. And, he's, and Jesus says, the goosebumps came because the air conditioning came on. It got cold. It wasn't the spirit. We're fickle. And Jesus knows it. In Jeremiah, God made a declaration about us. He said that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts. Search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due reward according to what their actions deserve. I, I want to just plant here for a second because God searches the heart. Right now, that means right now in this service, God is searching your heart. He knows what your secret motives are. And, and, and that, that should become a little bit unnerving to us because he knows our heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our desires. He knows our motivation. He knows every secret thing about us. Everything that you have kept to yourself, but is the real motivation behind why you do what you do. He already knows it. Jesus knows everything about it. And get this, I want you to hear me on this. He's not put off by it. He isn't disgusted by any part of your life, not your public life, not your private life, not your secret life. Yeah, we all have secret lives, and Jesus knows all about it, and he loves you in spite of it. Should have been a little more of that. I tell you, you give me some of that, and I'll preach myself happy right out of this building. So you got to help me out a little bit. So he, he knows all about it and he's willing to step in to all the stuff that is going on in your life. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to take all that junk of your life. He wants to sweep it away. He wants to remove it out of your life. And he wants to give you a new purpose. He wants to give you new meaning. He wants to give you new life. He wants to create something new deep inside of you so that you become a new creature and, and you become the person that God intended for you to be, become. He wants to give you a fresh start on everything. And I believe that's what drove Nicodemus to see Jesus at night, Nick at night. There was a desire here in his heart. There was something that was, that was missing. He's highly respected. He has everything anybody could ever want. He, he never wants for anything. He's got money. He's got prominence. He's got power. He's got prestige. He's got everything. He's got the pedigree. He's got everything that a person could ever want. Education. And yet, 
there is something that is missing right here. It's just not right. So that's why he seeks Jesus out, because he's thinking in him, in his mind, this, this young rabbi I saw at the temple. He's different. He, he acts different. He speaks different. What comes out of him is different. And I want that. Verses 2 and 3 says, This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is, is trying to kind of pat Jesus on the back and say, You're a pretty awesome dude. You're doing stuff nobody else does. Let me stroke your ego a little bit. And Jesus doesn't bite. He doesn't go for it. Because he's not there to talk about himself. Jesus already knows who he is. He doesn't need anybody. Remember, he, he, he didn't trust the people. Nicodemus is one of the people. And, and he knows Nicodemus is patting him on the back because Nicodemus has something else greater that Jesus needs to deal with. And Jesus already knows what it is. And that's why Jesus goes right to the greatest need that Nicodemus has. He goes right after, right, right from the beginning. And so what Jesus says to it, it pinpoints as the greatest need of Nicodemus is that Nicodemus is looking for an authentic spiritual awakening because he knows what he has isn't of God. And he's looking for something more. If he was from the south, he would have knocked on the door of Jesus and he would have said, I want more. Give me more. I want more. I want what you got. Give it to me. I was, I was telling one of our guitar players that's not tall and named Norm. Plays in the back. This morning that when I was in Alabama with my son Tyson, whenever we'd go into a gas station, hardware store, any of those kind of places, the guy behind the counter, when we would walk in, he'd look right at me and he'd go, what do you need, boss? And then he'd look at Tyson and go, you need something, Bubba? So I, I learned that in the South, that the old guy is boss and the young guy is Bubba. <laughs> Bubba, what do you think? Well, not much, boss. What do you think? So when I walked into a gas station, the guy behind the counter goes, can I get you something, boss? And I go, no, Bubba, I'm okay. And he's like. <laughs> but if you're from the South, you would have said to Jesus, boss, I want more. Because you would have recognized, just like Nicodemus, even though Jesus is probably younger than, than Nicodemus, he recognized the leadership and the authority and everything that Jesus had. And so he says to Jesus, I want what you've got. I want this spiritual awakening. If we were to put it in the words of Jesus, he really wants to be born again. And born again is probably, no, not probably, it is the most important thing that could ever happen to anyone. This is what Jesus is getting at with Nick and, and all the human achievements that Nicodemus has acquired and all the things that he has earned in his life with the education and everything. He knows that he's still coming up short on getting into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, unless you are born again, unless you have repented and have had a radical work of the Spirit of God in your life, you will not see the kingdom of God. Here's the major problem with our culture. We've heard all those sayings all of our lives. That this born again thing was new. Well, it was fairly new to Nicodemus. It was new to most people. But in our culture, we've heard it. I remember when I was a teenager, on the CBS Nightly News, I thought Walter Cronkite was my dad's best friend. Because he was in our house every night, and my dad would be talking to him on the television. But on that Nightly News, I remember it, 
the President of the United States came out and said, I am a born-again believer. And then it started to happen. They started to pop up everywhere. We had musicians, rock and roll and country western musicians popping up and going, I'm born again. And then you had professional athletes, me too, I'm born again. And then we had actors and movie stars all proclaiming that they've all been born again. But here's the problem with their proclamation of being born again. Nothing changed in their life. They were still, they were still doing the same old thing. They were saying the same old stuff. They were behaving everything and doing nothing. There was no regeneration of the heart. They were not truly born again by Jesus. And that's what happens. We have this, this, the, these famous sayings that we have, and, and the, we want to see the, the change of people's lives, and they make this proclamation out of their mouth that, I love Jesus, I'm born again. And they believe that just because they said that, that that's true. But that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that there's got to be this radical transformation of your life. I mean, you have the king of glory. You have the one who conquered sin and death. You have the one who is, is creator of everything. Who now, if you, if you truly are born again, if you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, you have a life that is transformed and you are nothing like who you used to be. So when Jesus said you've got to be born again, Nicodemus, that was, Nicodemus had a question. And, he, and so here's his question. He says to Jesus, how can a man be born again or born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? His question here isn't about how does, you know, a full-grown person get back into his mom. That's not really the question here. Because this wasn't something out of the grasp theologically for Nicodemus. Because the rabbis in his day had a saying to all those who converted to Judaism, it is now like you are reborn. You are a new child. So Nicodemus knew all about that because he's highly educated. He knew everything about that. So he wasn't confused about what Jesus was saying about being born again. He was confused about how do I become spiritually alive? Do I have to go and start over somewhere back there? How do I go back in order to become spiritually alive? That was the question he was asking. And Jesus said this to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the first time when Jesus says, you have to be born again, he told Nicodemus, you will, if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And now he says, if you are not born of water and the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is making it really clear that there is this process in which you have got to enter into in order to know spiritual birth to where you become spiritually alive. That's what rebirth means. The Bible tells us we are dead in our trespasses, but because of what Jesus did, he gave us new life, eternal life. And that's what Nicodemus is after. That's what he wants. Nick, notice Jesus doesn't get caught up in that conversation with Nicodemus that he's trying to start about this question of, of how and when and where and what. What Nicodemus is really asking and really wants to know is what must I do in order to be spiritually alive like you, Jesus? That's what he's asking.
The problem that Nicodemus had is he's now trying to adjust his thinking. Now that's an amen everybody should get in on. <laughs> Hear that? Yeah. That one's saying, get it moving, Pastor. The, um, the, the, the thing that Nicodemus was struggling with is because he was a highly educated, wealthy leader of the nation, had everything going for him. He could look back at his family tree. His pedigree was uh, unbelievable. And he could probably point all the way back to Abraham his, himself. And so he thought that all, all these things, my education, my positioning, my pedigree, my prominence, all these things are what are going to make me right with God. Because I go to the temple regularly. I follow all the regulations and all the rules. I do everything that God's laid out for me. I do it all. And so he's got this going on in his mind that I've done it all and I've done the right things. And now Jesus is going, all the stuff that you've done, everything that you've accomplished, uh, uh, even your family tree, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't get you anywhere. And now Nicodemus is like, then what does? What Jesus is saying is humility is the pathway to the kingdom of God. Because a proud person can never admit that they've been wrong. They're always right and they never make a mistake. Which means when it comes into having a conversation with God, they'll argue with God about what has happened or taken place in their life because they will never admit that they've sinned. It was just a misunderstanding. They, they really didn't lie. They just simply misspoke. But to be born again means that there has to be this humility that recognizes that their act of disobedience is solely primarily against God and that their actions and behavior attitudes are directed right at God and therefore they have sinned against God and in order for a person to become spiritually alive they must be as Jesus says born of water and the reference of water is directly connected to repentance Remember that John the Baptist, he was baptizing and his baptism was a baptism of repentance. So water is associated with repentance. And then to be born of the Spirit is a supernatural divine work of God that results in regeneration. And regeneration is a radical change. After we've been regenerated, we begin to see and hear and seek after things of God. We begin to live a life of faith and holiness. At that moment of regeneration, Christ is formed in our hearts. And we are partakers of the divine nature, having been made new creatures. God, not man, is the source of transformation. God's great love, free gift, His rich grace and source of Abundant mercy are the cause of rebirth. The mighty power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is displayed in the regeneration and conversion of a sinner. And there is a deep sense of remorse that accompanies being born again. The Bible talks about two kinds of sorrow. Matter of fact, the apostle Paul wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth and he said this to them. He said, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. Did you see that? God actually wants you to experience sorrow in your life. The problem is, we think that God just wants us to be happy, 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 happy. 
And what he really wants you to do is to recognize and be real about where you are and who you are and what, what's going on in your life. And, and if we were to be honest with ourselves, there should be many times when we have this sorrow that overwhelms us because it's from God. It's a godly sorrow. It overtakes our lives. And, and, and we, we, we turn away from sin and it results in salvation. Look at the rest of that verse. But worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Do you know what worldly sorrow is? It goes something like this. Um, Billy, why did you beat up Johnny in the... I'm sorry. That's worldly sorrow. They got caught beating up Johnny, Billy did, so he's sorry that he got caught. I mean, that's the way it was in my house. One time I picked up a dart in the backyard, in our big backyard next to the church. I, there was a rusty dart out there for some reason. And my little brother and I were playing catch with the football. And I picked up this dart and I just went like this. I threw it. And he goes, what'd you throw at me? I said, you'll see in about five seconds. He's standing there and right in his leg. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> and I said, What's the first words out of your mouth? Don't tell mom. How can you not tell mom? I've got this thing sticking out of my leg. I said, let me pull it out. He goes, no. Well, by this time, the muscles had cramped around that thing. And I'm... <laughs> Went in the house. And my mom says, now you tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry I didn't hit you in the head. See, that's what... Worldly sorrow is. Repentance requires that we acknowledge the things that we have done wrong. You have to acknowledge that you've sinned against that person and that you've sinned against God. You make a commitment to them that is with God's help that you're not going to go down this path again. There is remorse in all those things. When, when I came to faith, and some of you may have heard my story of conversion. And it happened when I was 12 years old and we went to this enormous family camp. They had like um, lodges and cafeteria. They had two cafeterias and the combined seating was over a thousand people. And there was close to 2,000 people that would show up to this family camp. And they had this huge tabernacle that would seat 1,500 people on the inside. And then they had wings that would flip open so that you could hear from sitting in the grass all that was going on. And the speaker at camp that year when I was 12, he gave a, 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 a message about being born again, how my sins are an offense to God, and that there is nothing righteous in me that will come to God at all. And at the end of his evening, when he got done, he gave the invitation for anyone who did not know Jesus to come to the front and confess their sin and ask Jesus to forgive them and ask Jesus to take control of their life. The Spirit of God came on me like that. I got up out of my seat and I, I almost ran down the aisle to get to the front where I was going to kneel and pray. And when I got there, I was weeping. Why was I weeping? Because I understood for the first time the, the depth of my sin that was an offense to God and that without God ever being in my life, I would be a total mess and I would be having, uh, my destination would be hell and I would deserve every moment of it without God. And so the elderly man that was there praying with me, he put his arm around me and I'm sobbing and he got me some Kleenexes and I was, I mean, it was tears and snot everywhere. And I was wiping it up. He says, now, son, confess your sin. And so I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. I knew all the sins. So I started to confess lying and stealing and cheating. I started to confess hatred in my heart. I started to confess bad language. I was thankful my parents weren't there because then I would have gotten a bar of soap too. But I was confessing. And then I finally thought, there's got to be more. I must have sinned greatly against God. I know. I've committed idolatry. I really didn't know what that meant. I was 12. 
well, if I'm talking about idolatry, well, then I must have committed adultery as well. <laughs> well, if I did adultery, I must have been fornicating somewhere. I didn't know what that meant, but I'm, I'm sure I did it. I wanted to cover all my sins, so I'd get fornication out of the way. And then I thought, oh, divination. I'm sure that's one of them. <laughs> so I confessed all my sin, and I got up. And when I walked away from that front aisle, from down at the front where I confessed my sin to Jesus, even the ones I hadn't committed, woo, I got them all taken care of. I walked out of there a free man. Best decision I've ever made in my life. And I've walked with Jesus ever since. And he has been showing me for the last however many years it's been, for a long time, here's a place that you need to change. And sometimes I'll pray a dangerous prayer. I'll go, search me, oh God, and know my heart. He says, oh, you want me to show you something? Right there. And I'm like, okay, thank you for that. And I'll deal with that. And that's the process of confession and repentance and renewal. But that only comes because you're born again. And, and, and that's exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. He goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Here's what the Spirit of God does. When you're born of the Spirit, that means that God the Father is going to give you spiritual gifts. He's going to give you spiritual understanding. He's going to help you with revelation and understanding the word of God because he made a promise that when we step into faith with Jesus Christ, he is going to deposit the Holy Spirit, God himself, in us so that the Holy Spirit is there to help us. The Holy Spirit is there to guide us, to encourage us, to transform us. The Holy Spirit assists us in prayer. He comforts us with fellowship and joy. I mean, I'm spitting on everybody now. Then, then he leads us in a process of sanctification, meaning that he is going to get directly in the, involved in the process of helping us to grow in holiness. All because you're born again, you get God. Because you're born again, you don't walk your own path. Now you've got a new road to go. And God promised to be there the whole way. But that's not all he did. He left this incredible mark on your life that makes you a mark and other people will look and marvel at your life when they see what God has done. And it comes out of Galatians 5. And here's what it says. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. You see, that's the identifying mark of the Holy Spirit in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. Because it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What that means is, is that the person that you would have total disregard for, the person that you couldn't care less about, you didn't care if they lived or if they died, now you care deeply about them and you love them. Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. Where you used to walk around and being Mr. or Mrs. Grumpy Pants and you couldn't find anything good about life, now Jesus puts the joy in you. And when somebody squirt, gives you a big old hug, you just squirt Jesus' joy all over them. That's what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit working in your life. Where you used to be an angry person, now you're kind. Where you used to be just impatient with everybody, you, you, now you've got the patience of Job where you had no control. Now you find yourself with complete self-control and you're amazed, but you're not the one that's amazed most. The person that's amazed most is your spouse or your children or your parents because they look at you and they go, something radical has happened in your life. And that's what the work of the Spirit is in our lives. Jesus went on to say in verse 8 that the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus' mind just went like this. Because everything he's ever known about God has been in the temple 
From, from right when God took Israel out of Egypt, they set up the tabernacle. And when you wanted to worship God, you would go to the temple. When you wanted to confess your sin to God, you would go to the temple. When you had to offer a sacrifice for yourself and for your family, you went to the temple. Anytime you wanted to gather with God's people and have this moment of celebrating God's goodness, you went to the and now Jesus is telling Nicodemus, don't go to the temple. The Spirit of God, he's no longer going to be in the temple. And he's going to blow into people's lives. And he's going to change their lives. And he's going to transform them. And they're going to be totally new creatures. And it's going to be this work of God that is just going everywhere. And Nicodemus can't get his little Jewish mind around it. Because that's not what it's been. You're changing everything. So this is how it's changed us. I love this verse out of Romans 8. It says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. Amen? Yeah. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. How do you get the Spirit of God living in you? You have to be born again. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. Because those who are not born again, their hearts have not been regenerated. They have not had this radical transformation take place. They're still the same people as they were back then. They're just like the people from 1978 that were going like, I'm born again, but I'm not changing my life. Well, no, you're not born again. You just learned some new words to put in your vocabulary. And here's what I believe very much, is that we are all like Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus wasn't clueless as to what Jesus was talking about. He's one of the smartest men in all of Israel. He understands clearly what Jesus is saying. And we're just like that. We know what Jesus is saying. So this morning, some of you have been sitting here and you've been going... I remember that day that I was born again. I remember when God transformed my life. I remember being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I remember being filled with the Holy Spirit and my life being different and having people come to me and go, what's different about you? You're not the same guy you used to be. There's something different about you. And so this morning you have been sitting here and you've just been overwhelmed with the goodness of God in your life. You are so filled with it right now that you're just like, I can hardly breathe because the presence of God has overwhelmed me again. I also know that there are some people here who are new to faith. And you're going like, I don't know nothing about nothing in the Bible. I couldn't articulate any of this stuff about with theology, whatever that means, and I don't know what regeneration means. I'm, I think I need to get baptized, but I don't know any of that stuff, so I can't really articulate any of this stuff, and I'm going to go, you know what, I agree with you. You wouldn't be able to. And, but let me say this, who cares? Honestly, do you love Jesus? I do. Has your life been transformed by Jesus? Yes, it has. Then let's just get moving and let Jesus do what he promised to do, to grow you into a mature Christ follower. But here's the truth about all of us. As children of God, we know, we know, you know, sitting here today, there are some of you sitting here today, you know that the Spirit of God has been poking you right here. You know it. You're going like, my life is not where it should be. I know that the things of God that I should be involved in, I am not. I know letting the Holy Spirit control my life, I am not. I am not doing what God's called me to do, and you know it. And all that the Holy Spirit is asking you to do is to come and do what you've had to do before. Confess and repent. It's simple. Because here's what happens. When you have unconfessed sin in your life, now you have given the devil power in your life. I want you to realize that. 
When you have sin in your life that you have not dealt with, unconfessed sin, that gives power to the enemy of your life. Because now he, all he needs is a foothold into your life. So that anger that you've not dealt with, the bitterness, the rage, all that, let it go. Put it back at the foot of the cross. Let Jesus take care of it. You know when you said, I will never forgive that person, that unforgiving heart, is now the foothold for the devil to come in and, and just have a heyday in your life and make you miserable. And you're wondering, why is my life so miserable? I thought loving Jesus was supposed to make my life better. It does if you keep short accounts. It does when you confess and repent. It does when we come to that moment where we come. And so there is, I, I want you to know that there is nothing in your life that will ever separate Jesus from your life. But the problem is, is when you let sin into your life, you separate yourself from the love of God. It's not him going, it's you going. Because a lot of times we get this kind of mixed up thought in our head that it goes something like this. I know I've sinned against you, God, and it's really bad, and I feel really bad about it, and actually I feel pretty sick to my stomach about it. But I deserve this, so I'm not going to confess my sin yet. I just want to live in misery for six months. That's really what we do. And Jesus is going like, don't be so stupid. I forgive you. Now. So confess your sins, repent, and know the restored relationship with God. Last thing, and I've gone a little bit over my time. I was supposed to be done a half hour ago. Um, I believe that there are people here this morning who've heard for the very first time what it means to be born again. That there's a confession of sin. And we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sin. And then we ask him to take control of our life. I think that there are people here this morning that this is new news to them. They've never experienced it. And they're wondering why their life is so messed up. And yet Jesus says, give me all your junk. I'm the, I'm the junk collector. I'm, I'm going to take all your trash. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to wash it. I'm going to clean it. And I'm going to make it righteous. And I'm going to give it back. And you're going to be a new creature. That's what he's saying this morning to you. And so in just a minute, if that's you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning so that you can make things right with Jesus. And then we're all going to celebrate together by worshiping Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you gave us such a vivid picture of what it means to walk in the fullness and what it means to live Lives that are sin-free, sin where Jesus has come and made us pure and right. And so we thank you. And for those people who know that you, Holy Spirit, have been poking them this morning, I pray that as they sing, that they would make things right, that they would confess their sin to you, that they would get back into the right relationship, and they would stop looking for the experience and just settle in with the giver of the experience. And there are people this morning, Jesus, right now in their heart, they're going, I need Jesus in a bad way. I need him right now. And if that's you, just repeat, repeat this prayer in your heart after me. Dear God, I know I've sinned against you. I know my life without you is a mess. I know that you, Jesus, died on the cross for my sin. And you told me that if I confess my sin, you are faithful and just and will forgive me of all of my unrighteousness. And so I confess all my sin to you right now. I ask you to forgive me for every wicked thought, for e every evil deed, for every lie I've ever told. I pray you would forgive me for all my sin, Jesus, even the ones I can't remember. Please forgive me for them. And then I'm asking you, Jesus, to come and live in my life and to make me a new person to make me, to transform me, to regenerate my life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would start moving me in the way of righteousness and holiness. And I give my life to you right now, Jesus. I pray in your great name. Keep your heads and your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you just prayed that prayer, just slip up your hand right now. 
Yep, I see that hand. I see that hand. Yep. Yes. Yes. Father, I just pray that you would encourage these folks. And maybe there were some that didn't raise their hand. I pray that you'd encourage them too. And as we lift our voices in praise of who you are and what you've done, Jesus, accept this as our offering of sacrifice and worship to you. May it be a a fragrant aroma in the throne room of God. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Now, I want you to go, if you raised your hand, I want you to go see Pastor Matt afterwards. He's, he's got something back there that we want to give to you to help you move in that right direction. Stand up. Let's sing. Show some joy. Jesus is good. It's all great.